Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's stand now and turn to our scripture for today's sermon. 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're focusing on verse 15, but I'm going to read the entire chapter as we're coming to the end of this chapter. This is the word of the Lord. It is eternally true. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. As a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making claim to godliness. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated. So we're focusing on that final verse. If, you've, if you weren't here for the last two sermons, you'll be missing a little bit of context. Uh, I went through 9 and 10 and then 11 through 14 in two sermons. And then we're here for the third sermon to focused on women uh, today. So we're focused on that verse, but women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Now, this one little verse has long perplexed the commentators and the academics. Um, what precedes it is very clear. It takes very little explanation. And then this verse comes along, and everybody thinks it's sort of a non sequitur, that it does not fit with what precedes. Um, I think it fits quite well, and it's the logical conclusion to this section. It's... Um, If we see this whole passage, um, particularly 2, 8 through 15, if we see it as the maintenance of God's creation order uh, to, to all of life, then this conclusion makes perfect sense in the context. The flow of thought would be like this. Men, pray, lifting holy hands, don't be angry. Two, women, be modest, do not teach and exercise authority over men. Why? Because Adam was created first and then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but Eve was deceived and transgressed. 
rather, and then four, rather than usurp the authority of the man, confess your sexuality, live as a woman. And that's what verse 15 focuses on. A few comments on the translation of the NASB, which is bad. Um, Literally, the verse should read, but an adversative which connects it to the previous verse and says, in contrast to what immediately precedes it, but she, a singular she, will be saved. That's the passive voice, which means the saving is done uh, to her by an outside agent, the passive voice, but she will be saved through childbearing, and childbearing, only that word only appears here in all of Scripture. It's called a hapex legomena. Yeah. And um, so through childbearing, if they, plural, they, it's a switch in the subject, if they, plural, continue in faith and love and sanctity or sanctification with self-control. So, Here's a verse where the ESV knocks it out of the park and the NASB doesn't get it, which, um, which is usually not the case. Usually the ESV bumbles it and the NASB gets it right. So this is one of those few times when it's helpful to know, one of those few times it's helpful to know something about Greek. Um, they translate it as I said above, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they... Continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So here's the meaning. First, this is an adversative yet or but, which means that the first part of verse 15 is set in contrast to the last thing stated in verse 14. So even though Eve was deceived and transgressed, yet she will be saved through childbearing, right? Even though she sinned, in transgressed, yet she will be saved. That is the promise, right, right from the beginning of Genesis 3.15. That the seed of the woman will crush the seed of the serpent. The Messiah would come from Eve. Eve was the mother of all the living, and childbearing was written into her body by God himself when he gave her a womb. She is hardwired to bear children, and quite obviously... Adam was not. Um, In a sense, only through the proper maintenance of the creation order would she experience her salvation, which was the birth of, down the line, the Messiah. Then without a pause, the pronoun changes to they, which is really interesting, right? The, The pronouns don't work together. Um, The pronoun changes today if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. And it's it's as if, or it, it is, the Holy Spirit zooming back and applying what was true of Eve then to all women. Okay, what was true of Eve being applied to all women. Likewise, it is through living our sexuality in the way that God intended that women will experience their salvation. In the same way that obedience to God, think of this, in the same way that obedience to God is the experience that believers have of their salvation, right? When we obey, we're experiencing God's work in us. We're experiencing our salvation, our regeneration. In the same way, um, women experience 
obedient salvation through living their sexuality. And the way that fruit and sanctification is the experience true believers have of the work of God in their hearts. This is how a woman works out her salvation in fear and trembling, for it's God at work in her, right? So we read, we read the following in that old tome that came out, it's been a long time now, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. I cracked the spine of that again. And it says this, We think it is preferable to view verse 15 as designating the circumstances in which Christian women will experience or work out their salvation. In maintaining as priorities those key roles that Paul, in keeping with Scripture elsewhere, highlights, being faithful, helpful wives, raising children to love and reverence God, managing the household. This is not to say, of course, that women cannot be saved unless they bear children. The women with whom Paul is concerned in this paragraph are all almost certainly married so that he can mention one central role, bearing and raising children, as a way of designating appropriate female roles generally. Now, that's a pretty good explanation, though I don't like the language of roles, right? There are not roles, men's and women's roles, like an actor plays a role, becoming something he isn't, right? When we play a role, it's becoming something we're not by nature, Um, There is living according to the way God made us to live. Um, God made distinctions, and one of the fundamental distinctions from the moment he begins knitting us together in our mother's wombs is male and female. It is no accident, right? It is by God's choice. So we live according to God's commands in accord with the sex he has made us. Um, But in general, what what, um, our, our... Recovering biblical, our BMW, yeah, says is right. The second half of verse 15, in its switch to they, and its connect to the first half of the verse, is highlighting the way in which a woman works out her salvation with fear and trembling. This is the way of sanctification, which makes sense with what the Holy Spirit adds to child rearing faith, love, and sanctity, holiness, sanctification with self-control or self-restraint. Now, I must say this. Just like we have a definition of fatherhood that goes beyond just having physical children, so we must have a definition of motherhood that goes beyond just having physical children. Our governing authorities are our fathers, right? God is invest Where we have authority, there's a sexual component, and that's our father's. Right? Our governing authorities are our fathers. Our police officers are our fathers. Because they exercise authority over us and seek to protect, to govern, and yes, even to love us. Motherhood is the same way. Are you, are you a woman who has washed the feet of the saints? Then you are a mother, even if you have had no children of your own. Right? Have you taught other young women to love their husbands, as is commanded in first in Titus 2? Then you're a mother. Right? Have you lived to elevate the glory of another as Jesus did with his father? Well, then you're a mother. Right? Have you assisted others in their time of need? Well, then you're a mother. Okay? Um, expand your understanding of motherhood to be not merely physical ch- children, but spiritual children. Um, 
just like the Apostle Paul calls Timothy his spiritual son. Right? It wasn't his physical son. He had a mother and a father. But, but Paul was his spiritual father. You know, like that, are there other people who would look to you as their spiritual mother? Right? Somebody who has, who has nurtured and loved them. Uh, in fact, the apostle describes himself as a mother. In 1 Thessalonians 2.7, But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Right? So even Paul was like a mother. Okay? But we, um, and, and that teaches us something about spiritual mothering. For, for those women who are not married or who are married and cannot have children, this doesn't get you off the hook. You can be taught by this verse. And you must be a mother. You're called to mother too. Now, I, you know, on the other hand, I also have to say this. Spiritual mothering cannot become an excuse to despise, avoid, or reject physical mothering. Childbearing, giving birth to children, which is one of the main purposes of what? Marriage. One of the main purposes of marriage is the propagation of a godly seed. Today, I think this is grossly misunderstood. We desire to spiritualize all the commands of Scripture and thereby water down Scriptures to, you know, and, and don't take the, the commands of Scripture like this verse uh, on their face value. Um, how many times does Scripture command women to bear children? Now, even me asking that question is offensive today. I feel it. I feel it in your awkward smiles, right? How many times does Scripture command women to bear children? You might be surprised. Before the fall, one of those creation mandates, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Okay, so so one of the very first commands from God was this mandate. It's The specific area of God's curse tells us something about the centrality of childbirth to a woman, right? The man is cursed in his work, right? That that cultivating and keeping of the garden, he's cursed there. The woman is cursed where? In childbearing, right? To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children. And how have we learned that recently? The name of the first woman. What is the name of the first woman? Now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And after the fall and the flood, it's not like the command stops. The command is reiterated by God to Noah. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That imply, He said it to his sons, but it implies... That there must be women willing to be mothers. Think of this passage. Think of the Hebrew midwives. And it's the last verse I'm thinking about in this. But, but let me remind you. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Sifra and the other was named Pua. And he said, when you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God. 
and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and let the boys live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. So God was good to the... Listen to this. So God was good to the midwives... And the people multiplied and became very mighty. Because the midwives feared God, he established households for them. The midwives have children because they protect, they've mothered Israel. And so they're blessed with children. Literally, it says God gave them families. And then in the Psalms, Psalm 127 and 128, Psalm 127, 3, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. And then Psalm 128, the next psalm, Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine within your house, your children like olive plants around your table. Right, That picture of fruitfulness, that picture of, of the children around the table. Fruitful vine. Proverbs 31, she looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and bless her. Her children rise up and bless her. She has children. She's committed to them. All the rest of the proverb is about how she's providing and mothering. Um, The godly widow of 1 Timothy 5. Think of this. She's to be put on the list if having a reputation for good works and if she has brought up children. If she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work, there's my definition of motherhood right there, right? Both physical and spiritual, washing the feet of the saints, but also taking care of children, if she has brought up children. Younger widows are told to do something. This is probably the most offensive verse to modern culture in all of Scripture. Younger widows are told to do something. Imagine saying this to a younger widow today. Imagine an elder board having the the wonderful task of, of merely suggesting this, merely suggesting that a young widow read this verse. 1 Timothy 5.14, Therefore I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, And give the enemy no occasion for reproach. We can't even conceive of reading that verse. But there it is. I want younger widows, not the older widows who are over 60 who may be put on the list. But younger widows are to get married, bear children, keep house, give the enemy no occasion for reproach. And then Titus, Titus commands older women... Likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, not enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to what? To love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. So, I mean, so... So scripture all over the place, there's no way around this. Scripture all over the place praises, commands, and commends motherhood. And yet, you know what word is coming in the report from our, you you know what word is missing. You know what word is missing in 
the report from the Ad Interim Committee of our denomination on women serving in the ministry of the church. The word motherhood is not in the report. The word motherhood. And mother only makes five appearances, all very innocuous. Um, This is my concern, that motherhood, like fatherhood, in many respects, is despised. Um, We certainly know that our broader culture despises motherhood and is set on destroying it. That's what feminism has been all about, destroying femininity and, and, and motherhood. But the church only recognizes masculine callings and masculine giftings. And this committee report makes that clear. How could they not mention motherhood when it comes to women's ministry in the church? How could they only mention the word helper or helpmate once in a quote of Genesis 2.18, but not as a concept to define the ministry of women? I mean, helpmate encapsulates the calling of the first woman in all her female descendants. And it has no place in a supposedly comprehensive report from a from a group of highly esteemed scholars and churchmen. I mean, how can that be? Well, it's because there is an embarrassment about the passages that I just shared with you. You see, that is why I said last time, this is a missed opportunity to shout to the heavens about the glory and purpose of femininity. It is a missed opportunity to call women to work out their salvation by pursuing the fundamental meaning of their sex, childbearing. And I mean that physically and spiritually, childbearing. Now I'm going to share this quote from Chesterton again. I'll come back to this every time I preach on femininity and women. It captures something of the awe we should have for women who follow God's calling to be mothers. To put the matter short, this is G.K. Chesterton from What's Wrong with the World. To put the matter shortly, women, woman is generally shut up in a house with a human being at the time when he asks all the questions that there are, and some that there aren't. It would be odd if she retained any of the narrowness of a specialist. Now, if anyone says that this duty of general enlightenment is in itself too exacting and oppressive. I can understand the view. I can only answer that our race has thought it worthwhile to cast this burden on women in order to keep common sense in the world. But when people begin to talk about this domestic duty as not merely difficult but trivial and dreary, I simply give up the question. For I cannot with the utmost energy of imagination conceive what they mean. When domesticity, for instance, is called drudgery, all the difficulty arises from a double meaning in the word. If drudgery only means dreadfully hard work, I admit the woman drudges in the home, as a man might drudge at the cathedral of Amiens or drudge behind a gun at Trafalgar. But if it means that the hard work is merely is more heavy because it is trifling, colorless, or of small import to the soul, then as I say, I give it up. 
I do not know what the word means. To be Queen Elizabeth within a definite area, deciding sales, banquets, labors, and holidays. To be Whitley within a certain area, providing toys, boots, sheets, cakes, books. To be Aristotle within a certain area, teaching morals, manners, theology, and hygiene. I can understand how this might exhaust the mind, but I cannot imagine how it could narrow it. How can it be a large career to tell other people's children about the rule of three and a small career to tell one's own children about the universe? How can it be broad to be the same thing to everyone and narrow to be everything to someone? No, a woman's function is laborious, but because it is gigantic, not because it is minute. I will pity Mrs. Jones for the hugeness of her task. I will never pity her for its smallness. Does that encourage you women who, who labor at home under the drudgery of that work? I hope it does. For once, I'd like to see some kind of statement like Chesterton's in a modern denominational study on women in the church, um, and women in the home, women in society. We are doing all that we can now to destroy both fatherhood and motherhood, perhaps even childhood too. And the scripture and God's will is the only good corrective. It's the only healing medicine. It's the only avenue where repentance will actually come. And we lisp and we stammer and we close our mouths in embarrassment about motherhood and childbearing. Even though with what the Holy Spirit says in 1 Timothy 2.15, we have every reason to believe that motherhood is a woman's greatest avenue of sanctification. Do we want to please God? Do we want to honor Him? Or shall we go along with a godless, hateful, and destructive culture and despising what God has called good? Now, I see the women of this church giving themselves to motherhood, and it's glorious. It's glorious. I see... Uh, a woman sitting by her baby in the NICU day in and day out. Right? I see women caring for those who have needs via meals and conversations and, and kindness. I see women wrecking their bodies to bear children. Cut open abdomens and stretch marks and bulging discs in their backs. I see Older women teaching the younger women. I see service to other people's children in nursery. I see spiritual mothering from sisters and friends and mothers, which is costly and it's time-consuming. But it's glorious. It's glorious. It is the, the very strength of our church. That is the strength of the women's ministry in this church. And you get no commendations in this study committee's report. Instead, they spend their time conceding ground to all those women who complain about motherhood and want their time to lead the church. You know, the shrews. 
who have thrown off motherhood and demand that it is their time to teach and exercise authority over a man. And I use that word intentionally. It's exactly what it is. Now I'm going to conclude here with a story that was brought to my attention by Tim Bailey. And you have to work through some of the bad theology in this because it's written by a Catholic. But there is bad theology you have to work through in the PCA's report too. Um, The point this makes though is a good understanding of this verse. Um, What she called, you know, would that she called it sanctification rather than what she does, but hopefully this will help you. And so I share it in its entirety. This is from 2009, written by a woman, uh, Marian Fernandez Cueto. Hands to heaven, it's called. There's a line, in, and, and I, women, listen to this, because I think it's going to capture some of your, your, uh, your frustrations, but also um, some of your hope and sanctification. There's a line in Scripture that has always infuriated me. It's Timothy 2.15, and for years I could not read it without wanting to hurl my Bible at the wall. The woman, writes St. Paul, will be saved by childbearing if only she continue with faith, love, and holiness. It's baptized misogyny. Was insulting enough, how typical, to posit a woman's salvation within her social confines of barefoot pregnant servitude. Yet beneath it lurked a more devastating injury, the idea that a woman's sanctity was tied up in motherhood. That spelled damnation for me, I thought, for the drudgery, there's that word again, of childbearing was the last thing I aspired to. Then I fell in love with a man who wanted kids the way former boyfriends had dreamed of a plasma TV. As he wooed and pursued me, I realized it was not motherhood per se I had long feared and mocked, It was the utter dying to self that motherhood entails. My individualism and selfishness were alive and well, fostered by nearly a decade of independence during which my time, decisions, money, plans, and body had remained solely my own. The idea of marriage thrilled me. It was no sacrifice to love him. But children held no such natural enticement towards self-ablation. Like St. Augustine's tepid plea for chastity, I didn't want my selfishness scourged quite yet. But St. John writes that perfect love casts out fear, and it is true, even of flawed loves like ours. A year after our wedding, we found ourselves praying I might get pregnant. Two days later, I did. To say I was ecstatic would be a lie. I hadn't expected an answer to arrive overnight express. But we were awed at this new life God and our union had wrought. My pregnancy proceeded in a happy glow. I grew fat and contented as a tabby cat, unhampered by morning sickness. I don't hate her for that. I shopped and cleaned, cooked and froze dinners, ordered parenting books, and interviewed doulas in a blissful whirl of organization. I found myself dreaming of long, scorned domestic scenes, a tangle of jolly siblings for our son, and a kitchen fragrant with hot meals and teasing affection. Finally, I thought I was ready to be a mother. Then Dominic was born. I still remember my feelings of incredulity when the hospital night nurse first woke me up to feed him. Seemingly minutes after a searing labor, I looked at the clock, 2.20 a.m. 
then at my mewling, scrunchy little baby, and knew like Napoleon at Waterloo that the end had come. The end of life as I knew it and liked it. This child, this responsibility was mine for the rest of my life. I felt a tidal wave of resentment that God had allowed me to welcome pregnancy while providing barely a shred of fuzzy maternal instinct beyond delivery. I knew my hormones were running amok, but I felt blindsided and betrayed. Where was the grace that had flooded the previous nine months? Right then, I wanted nothing more than to rewind time back to that September night when we'd first asked God for a baby and postpone our prayer another two years. I wanted to push my son right back at the nurse and snap, you feed him. I'm a wretched mother already, I thought. Poor, innocent, ill-fated, dominant. Somewhere, I'd assume that if only I prayed hard enough for grace when I accepted pregnancy, a good mother would be born with my son. I had forgotten that elemental wild card of Catholic theology that grace builds on nature. Prayers are not magic spells, and none would instantly transform my long-fostered habit of selfishness into a spirit of enthusiastic self-sacrifice. Instead, over the next months, weeks and months, a loving Savior would ask me to take my cross and learn to follow him. In obeying, I would discover that God rarely calls the equipped. Meanwhile, Dominic didn't know he was poor and ill-fated. He was a near-perfect baby by every account with limpid blue eyes and pink puckish smiles. I coddled and bathed him, tickled and sang to him, boasted shamelessly of every new feat. When we, he napped on our bed, flushed with sweet sleep, I would lie beside him and murmur my undying love into his damp, blonde curls. Yet through it all, I rebelled. A voice in my head echoed the old cry, Lucifer, I will not serve. You're too good for this, said the voice. You were made for better things. Not the endless, mind-numbing tedium of diapers and dishes and laundry. Where is the glamour, the intellectual stimulation, the chances and promotions you still deserve? Is this really what God intended for you? The voice would resume each morning as I watched the army of lawyers and interns swinging down 16th Street in their lattes and briefcases and careers eat smartly dressed young woman luxuriating in her phone conversation or iPod, represented a life I couldn't have anymore. Opportunities and experiences that would never be mine. You see, the voice said, you see? Of course, every slide into self-pity would trigger an even greater avalanche of guilt. The world over, women were struggling with infertility, miscarriages, the death of a child, or newborns with cruel, debilitating diseases. Thousands of new mothers would never have the luxury of choosing whether to go back to work. Thousands more lacked a caring, sensitive husband or any kind soul to see them through the first day's months. I despised myself utterly for chafing under Dominic's featherweight load. I knew to the core how fortunate I was, how ludicrously bourgeois my malaise. And so my self-loathing would compile. I reached the breaking point one afternoon while walking with Dominic past St. Matthew's Cathedral. A panhandler, just bear with me, a panhandler standing at the corner took a look at my stroller and its sleeping cargo and inexplicably dragged a condom out of his pocket. If you'd used one of these, he leered, you wouldn't have had him. 
Shaken, I knew the man had articulated the very thought that had risen like a demon specter on more than one sleep-deprived night. That condom represented every temptation I'd experienced in my struggle to be open to life. Every forbidden alternative I might have taken as I struggled to welcome first pregnancy and then dominant. Sick with shame, I sought out a priest in confession. With the gentle yet exacting probe of an experienced confessor, he asked me to name what I would rather be doing. Go on, imagine, he urged. Let's say you can leave your family, your responsibilities. What do you want? My answers were distressingly ready. I want to see the rest of the world, I told him. I want to be the foreign correspondent I trained to be. I want to take my morning coffee in silence, to read the the paper uninterrupted. I want to sleep until noon on Saturdays or at least through the night. I want my time, my space, my schedule, my plans, my peace, my quiet. I want me again. I just want me. The priest gazed at me, his eyes puffed with compassion. All of us want that, he said. But serving ourselves, living for ourselves, what does the gospel say about that? He who seeks to save his life will lose it. Unless the grain of wheat falls in the earth, we know we can't find happiness that way. Try me, I thought darkly. Not long after, God took me up on my silent challenge. When an old college friend flew in from France, I was given the chance to see George Bailey style what my life might have been like without Dominic. Veronica, a single, gorgeous, multilingual painter, was living out the very fantasy I tried to articulate to my confessor. She jetted around the globe with no apparent responsibility, standing between her next whim and reality. Her family was distant. Her jobs, like her love interests, were sporadic and provisional. All were powerless against the lure of new ventures and continents. I couldn't wait to hear her stories, to soak in the shimmering brilliance of her life. Inviting her over for tea one afternoon, I braced myself for the flash of pity I had often glimpsed in her eyes at my increasingly predictable beige-hued existence. Husband, child, mortgage, minivan. It never came. Veronica was miserable and desperately so. Approaching 30 like me, her hard independence, emotional skittishness, and sheer impulsivity were catching up with her. She hated her expensive art school. Her emails, dazzling travelogues forwarded to massive lists of friends were going unacknowledged. The handful of men in her life arrived and then disappeared with a disturbingly familiar slapdash autonomy. She was tired of being broke, of depending on the more conventionally stable for her car rides and phone calls and suppers. Yet the promising internships and positions were passing her by for younger college grads who had long since paid their dues in nine-to-five grunt jobs. Veronica seemed haunted by a stirring realization that years of self-direction, self-discovery, and self-fulfillment, also greedily panted after by me, had brought her not nirvana, but only herself. A self she was starting to find unbearable. As she watched me wipe applesauce, off Dominic's chin. Help him down from the high chair and start preparations for yet another meal. Her eyes reflected not pity, but raw, naked wishing. 
And her next words startled me further. I wish I had someone to love and give myself to like that. She said, sometimes I'm afraid my heart is going to shrivel up. I expected to feel relief at Veronica's woe. After all, her admissions amounted to foundational cracks in a lifestyle I had lusted for with near idolatry. But instead, I felt only wonder in the spreading epiphany that mothering, that vocation I wore like a penitent's hair shirt, had spared me the tyranny, the terrible poverty of my unconstrained will. As I glimpsed the bleakness of Veronica's life, I realized I never could be born, could have borne the curse I had craved so long, that of gaining the whole world only to lose my soul. In his all-seeing mercy, God had eliminated from me the option of exclusive self-service when I bore Dominic. As a wife and mother, my heart might bleed, but I knew it would never shrivel pumped full as it was with the occupational hazards of delight and terror, grief and compassion. When Veronica left, I clutched my son to my breast and wept with gratitude. Henry Ward Beecher once wrote that children are the hands by which we take hold of heaven. I first inscribed that quote in Dominic's baby book, but it is only now, nearly four years and an infant daughter later, that I see it as simply a more palatable version of Timothy 2.15. Through Veronica, I realized that, all, that what I once called heaven, all that came from my own stubborn chewing, was the quintessence of hell itself. Only children could roll away the stone from the grave of self in which I lay and offer my soul rebirth. Though I mostly struggle and stagger in my vocation as a mother, listen to this, this is the last line. Though I mostly struggle and stagger in my vocation as a mother, I do so rejoicing knowing that God will hold me through it if only I continue with faith, love, and holiness. This woman, at least, will be saved by childbearing. Is that not glorious? Let that sink in. Let this verse sink in, women. If you don't have children, you are not off the hook. Let this sink in. There is much mothering to be done. There is much loving and nurturing to be done. And motherhood is glorious. How it could be left out of our denominational study is, is a tragic, sinful oversight. Because motherhood is glorious and this, this, these verses testify to it. Let's now pray.